0: Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hawke and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. There's a wide range of people here, from those who know nothing about alchemy to those who are in the Alchemy Home Study Program and working with the principles firsthand. So we're going to start with some principles to get everybody on the same track as, as, as fast as we can, basically. If you have any questions, though? Um, raise your hand or holler out or throw something at me and, and we'll answer because we want everybody to come along with us, you know, because we're gonna, this is going to be like a crescendo, if you will. Uh, we're going through the true initiations here. We're going to start out in the outer court. This is going to be the teachings, the hermetic teachings of alchemy and the philosophy of alchemy, especially the terminology that we'll be using of alchemy. And then we're going to go into the inner chamber, the inner hall, and do some meditations and work through each of the operations of alchemy, so that you feel them on all the levels that the alchemist experience them. What is that? Here's the first principle. Alchemy takes place always on three levels at once, spontaneously at the same time. Alchemy works in the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. This is tricky for, for modern people to, to understand that one thing on one level could confirm or deny something on another level. Something going on in your body by a correspondence and what you feel in, intuitively in your mind, that would confirm the operations, in the, the physical operations in the laboratory sometimes. Spiritual visions would confirm it, synchronicities and things like that would confirm it. And the alchemists would work on the spiritual level to make a change on the physical level or they'd work on the mental level or the physical level to make a change on the mental level. I mean, it's like calculus. It's like when you're working with, um, and forgive me, I'm a mathematician, we won't go into any deep mathematics, I promise, but there is an analogy there. If you've done arithmetic, working with numbers like that is so laborious, so boring, so one level all the time and then all of a sudden you're exposed to calculus and it's like everything's freed up and moving all the time uh, because you work from zero to infinity and you, you have to think like that and you have to learn how to think what's it going to do if, if this expression or formula is taken to infinity and taken back down to zero and all the numbers in between. That's what the alchemists do on all three levels of reality. So they're constantly switching back and forth between levels in the laboratory and, um, and in their own Private lives and their own private perfection, psychologically uh, and bodily. Um, That's what's confusing to a lot of people about alchemy, and when they read the alchemists and the the original alchemists, is that they're talking about all three levels at once. One alchemist could be talking about a a physical experiment in the laboratory, another alchemist talking about some psychological problem he's having, and I'm working with the energies there, another alchemist talking about some spiritual insight on the highest level of consciousness, and they're all talking about the same thing, and that's that's hard, and you'll you'll notice that, that I'll I'll be flipping around like that, so forgive me (laughs) at the beginning, but things on different levels confirm different things on other levels, and that's the principle of alchemy, and it really frees up your mind, and... uh, why well, we're going to be talking about linear operations in alchemy, none of this is linear. It's really, uh, and that's another point to try to make, that this is an evolutionary growing process that, that is basically the pattern of the universe. Where to start with alchemy? Uh, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a long history, such a tragic history in a lot of ways, and such an important history to everyone in the room, everyone living today. And it starts, the true history of alchemy actually starts as a kind of a conspiracy, a conspiracy to suppress it, which has been called, I think, um, the Hermes Conspiracy by other authors. But it involves, um, goes back to about 1400 B.C., and involves a, a, a remarkable pharaoh by the name of Akhenaten. Um, he was a pharaoh who really was just... Uh, kind of a traditional pharaoh. At the time the the religion of Amun or Amen uh, was the predominant religion in Egypt along with all the other gods of Egypt the, the dozens and dozens of gods. So it was a plural uh, divine society if you will. They had different aspects of, of gods that they worshipped and, and the priests of Amen were the strongest and they truly had great power over the politics of the country. Akhenaten according to his own writings, rediscovered the Emerald Tablet, which according to legends, and actually some more recent uh, writings we find uh, from Manetho, uh, a scribe in uh, Alexandria, the Emerald Tablet was written by a, a man, god, or a divine person, or an extraterrestrial, whatever Toph was. He was the author of the Emerald Tablet. He was part of a group of nine, as they called it, the Ennead. And Toph was like the emissary between these rulers, whoever they were, wherever they came from. There's no mention of where they came from in any of the texts, except that they came during a time called zeph Tepi, And this is about 10,000 B.C., between 40,000 and 10,000 B.C., a time called zeph Tepi in the text, when giants, now whether they mean Titans or whether they mean giant intellects or, or other things uh, the texts are not clear in that too but some type of exceptional people came to the planet came to Egypt and, um, and and started teaching people these advanced ideas and these are the original hermetic teachings according to the tradition and during the flood which was about 10,000 BC the great flood that swept through Egypt and all around the world uh, To summarized the teachings, that these, the Antioch brought to the world in the Emerald Tablet. It's a succinct summary of all the teachings. And he put the Emerald Tablet, yes, E-N-N-E-A-D. It means group of nine, and that's what the Egyptians called them. And um, he summarized the principles and put them in the Emerald Tablet, which was a crystalline tablet. In fact, the uh, We know, we there's a lot of evidence that the emerald tablet was a real, genuine emerald tablet. It was, uh, from the Egyptian measurements, 11 by 16 inches square tablet. Emerald clear glass or emerald with base relief lettering. We know this from... Writings, the letters of people who actually saw it on public display. Alexander the Great put the Emerald Tablet on public display in Heliopolis in 32 B.C., and people who saw it actually wrote letters about it. We have those letters. So there's there's some evidence that this is a real Emerald Tablet, that it really is some type of miraculous um, uh, document like that, and that it even glowed in some of the letters, and, and very weird things have been written about the Emerald Tablet all through history. So it's fable, and it's fact and it's a combination of uh, human expectations too, that there should be something like this that would fall from heaven to give us guidance in the world and, uh, and that's what happened in Egypt according to the old writings Toph took the, the tablet and put it in one uh, pillar, he sealed it up in a, in a granite pillar a green granite pillar and he took the writings and the scrolls that they had and sealed them up, them up in another pillar these two pillars came to be called the Pillars of Hermes down through history, and they were reported by actually existing uh, Herodotus wrote about them and other historical um, researchers that these were really still existing. He sealed them up in 10,000 B.C. to survive the Flood. In other words, that was his legacy and the Groups of nine legacy to us. And indeed, the first mention we have of them being rediscovered, of someone finding these pillars and, and releasing the documents within them, is with Akhenaten, in about 1440 uh, B.C. When he discovered the, uh, the, uh, the Emerald Tablet and the teachings therein, he actually changed his name uh, from Akhenaten, in other words, Servant of the Amen, this god, to Akhenaten servant of the one God. Because the teaching in the Emerald Tablet is that all the gods, all the archetypal presences are just aspects of one soul God, the one mind of the universe. That teaching is fundamental in alchemy. And it became fundamental uh, to Moses, a prince in his court, the whole Abrahamic tradition could have founded seed in Akhenaten's court in fact Freud wrote a book about that there's been other books about that too so it's not my idea it's, there's evidence there that, uh, that Moses took his idea of the one God from these teachings Akhenaten went even further he ran with it and he uh, tried to shut down and destroy the priest of Amen. Uh their powers uh, were supreme though and it was very difficult so he, formed, he moved the capital from Thebes to his own city uh, of the Aten, he called it. It was a community um, that still exists in Egypt um, of about 60,000 people. 60,000 select spiritually advanced people who bought to the city. They lived in in amazingly modern conditions. Yeah, this city was amazing, really, in its, in its power uh, as a presence in the world. It was like a utopian society. 60,000 spiritually advanced people. Men and women had voice in the community men and women had the same say men and women shared the same quarters this is extremely unusual for Egypt even today for women to have any voice and he gave it to them at that time um, and also well there's all kinds of things that they shared masculine and feminine energies the whole idea of um, Akhenaten was to balance these energies in fact there's evidence that he himself was kind of a hermaphrodite. He certainly was a strange-looking guy. Uh, huge hips. He had a pear-shaped body, uh, huge wide hips, pendulant breasts, um, and a, a big cone-shaped head. I mean, he looked like an alien. Uh, and there's there's evidence from his uh, uh, from physiologists and others who looked at his pictures and statues that he was afflicted with a hermaphroditism. And uh, and that was embodied in him too. Whether that came after discovering the Emerald Tablet or before, there's no there's no evidence. But we do know that when he discovered these teachings, all of a sudden his main goal was to balance masculine and feminine energies. In fact, uh, his city had the first unisex toilets way before Ali uh, Beale <laughs> had on her show. It was uh it was an amazing amazing society. After about 17 years of this. Uh, Akhenaten and his teachings uh, and and there's so much there on Akhenaten I recommend you following some of his texts and teachings he wrote beautiful poems about the Aten, which is uh, a, a word for the god but it's an abstract word, in other words the gods before that were all personified the Aten was an abstract god, in other words a force in the universe the one god, the one mind from whence everything else originated and we'll see that uh, in more detail but uh, Akhenaten's teachings are, are truly amazing uh, as far as their insight into spiritual forces he had schools of breathings in the king's chamber of the uh, uh, of the uh, pyramid of uh, uh, chaos he had schools of breathing that he'd bring people to learn esoteric techniques like chronic healing and things like this he was practicing all this back in the in the 1400 B.C. era. Uh, unfortunately, the priests finally gained control and they, uh, they assassinated uh, Akhenaten they, and his beautiful wife. I mean, this ugly duckling of a guy had the most beautiful woman in the world for a wife, Nefertiti. They had a son, Tutankhamen, uh, whose original name was Tutankhaten, <laughs> And they according to some of the writings they tore up his body and fed it to dogs and that of his wife too. The ultimate insult for a pharaoh not to, be, not to have the body preserved they tore up his body and fed it to dogs that's how badly they wanted to destroy him and they went through all of Egypt and destroyed anything that, that referenced um, Akhenaten and his teachings uh, the priesthood of Amen gained power, the multi plural gods came back um, the priest came back to power and they replaced the government they actually controlled the government they controlled Tutankhamun, who himself was assassinated uh, when he was 18 because he was coming to power and bringing in ideas that, that uh, suppressed the priesthood this is where the conspiracy started 1400 BC a conspiracy that continued to the medieval church and continues to this day to suppress spirituality and spiritual teaching, that spirituality is supreme, that spiritual techniques are supreme, that they work in the world. In other words, it was the same idea that the medieval church had, that you could not, in your privacy of your own room, you could not make a divine connection with God. You could not, through meditation, reach the divine mind. That's what Akhenaten taught, and that's what the priests of the men were against. They wanted to be the middlemen. They wanted to be the, the, uh, the toll keepers at the gate, you know, to, to get this money, get these uh, tributes um, to enter heaven. It's the same sick situation that, that uh, a lot of so-called spiritual people do, that they're the intermediary between you and your God. It's just not true. It's just not true in the in the Akhenaten technique of of uh, spirituality. It's not true in the teachings of the Emerald Tablet. So that's the conspiracy that we have to deal with. It's a suppression of the um, suppression of our spiritual nature, really. And it's telling us that we're less than we really are. That we're not like God. That we have to go through a church. We have to follow these rules. We need an intermediary. We cannot connect with the divine source on our own. That's true. That's that's, that's quite right. In fact, to this day, you can feel the the uh, effect of the amen. We say amen in our prayers. Uh to this ancient, ancient god. <laughs> this phrase, solve et coagula, is a Latin phrase. I won't give you too many Latin phrases, I promise, but this is this summarizes the whole work in alchemy. It's from a Latin phrase that is solvita corpora et coagulata spiritus. It means dissolve the body and coagulate the spirit. That's what Solve et coagula. And it's a principle that, that works in alchemy all through Spagirik's work, all, all through spiritual work, and all through mental work. In other words, dissolve that that which we are, that which we're working with, to release its essences, save those essences, and coagulate them in a new body that works on every level that we'll be working with. This is uh, just one drawing of many, if you research and you'll see a lot of these, of one of his schools in the Pyramid uh, of Chaos in Egypt, um, where there was a lot uh, uh, of um, experiential things going on in his schools. There wasn't so much literal teaching as it, w- as it was experiential thing. They had the Emerald Tablet there. When they revealed the Emerald Tablet, there was some type of effect on people, uh, some type of spiritual effect that all- was always related to some type of light appearing in their minds. Um, they all did they did all kinds of crazy things here though. Um, they put in the in, the, um, in this chocolate covered sarcophagus that's in the the uh, king's chamber um, when it had a lid. The lid's been taken out, but they used to take an initiate, seal him up in the sarcophagus, put the lid on airtight for eight minutes. The person would have a near-death experience because he'd be starved of oxygen and, and often an out-of-body light type of experience. They did anything, anything crazy like that to to initiate to break through the boundaries into the spiritual side, so it was really, uh, really radical and, and really uh, interesting in a lot of ways. This period, th- this comes from 1800s. Uh, this is when uh, Napoleon, just after Napoleon, uh, rediscovered Egypt, and they found the, the writings of Manetho, M-A-N-E-T-H-O, and if you search him on the internet, you'll find all these writings I'm talking about. And they dis- they wrote the artist. Oh, like from uh, theosophy and some of the other groups um, that did drawings like this. Right, it's from it's based on what uh, Manetho described in his in his text. <clears throat> this is a medieval portrayal of uh, Hermes Trismegistus. Uh, Hermes the thrice greatest uh, is what the Latin means. In other words. He achieved perfection on all three of these levels we're talking about body, mind, and spirit uh, Hermes is related to Mercury uh, in the Roman tradition to Toph in the Egyptian tradition to Enoch uh, in the Islamic tradition and in the Bible um, it's a presence that is. A, it's really hard to tell was this a man was this a God was this a spiritual presence was this something that came up in people Can we be Hermes? Is there a toff here? Can we connect that way? The answer in alchemy, uh, in the alchemical tradition is yes, that you can become Hermes. And that, in fact, writers who felt that they shared the mind of Hermes wrote under Hermes' name. So we have hundreds of documents from Hermes Trismegistus that may originate from many different authors, but they felt like they did in Egypt. When you were in this one mind, it was all the same mind. It was all this inspired presence. And it wasn't channeling, no. It was the inspiration that came from top. This type of hermetic teaching, which is called the the perennial philosophy, filtering down from above and giving you clues to what it is and how it applies in your society. It's like there's a force back there coming through to us. And it's not channeling. It comes through when we feel inspired and when we we connect with inspiration. Um, And very much... So that it's the same type of ideas coming through when, when, when you're in that state. So the Corpus Hermeticum is a, is a collection of hundreds of documents um, written in the name of Hermes, all saying, I am Hermes. And a lot of people say, well, then they're all fraud, <laughs> but not so, because they were in this one mind. It's the same person, and that person goes all the way back to talk. And that's the idea that this presence is with us in the world today. And that it's there for us to connect to, if we make that effort to go to into higher consciousness. Because once you're in the higher consciousness state, you're connected. You're a stone's throw from this one mind, and, and its uh, uh, and its influences on it. us. Uh, the Emerald Tablet of course, uh, some of the most favorite famous phrases, and in fact. Um, I think we're going to sanctify the energy here a little bit before we go any further, and uh, and the best way to do that, I found, is to, um, save the emerald tablet, and you've got a copy of the emerald tablet in in your in your book there. Um, let's just take a few breaths and forget about all the traffic today, and forget about all the hassle coming here, and. Uh, Get about your breakfast, <laughs> and let's connect with the this higher mind I'm talking about. And if you just listen to the Emerald Tablet and its principles, I think you'll discover in this in this short phrase um, principles that you can live within your heart as well as in your mind. Don't really try and understand it intellectually. Just feel what it's telling us uh, spiritually, and the alchemist said the Emerald Tablet, read the Emerald Tablet, whenever they began their work, the medieval age, in the medieval times, um, alchemists had a copy of the Emerald Tablet on their walls, constantly going over to it, uh, referencing the secret formula that it contains. And it does indeed contain a chemical formula, uh, which I've translated some, uh, there's a million word text from Gottlieb Lotz, who was an alchemist, a German alchemist. I've translated a lot of it, and it's all about the actual chemical formulas, what the chemicals were, in the in the so-called Icanum experiment that is concealed and coded in the Emerald Tablet. Fascinating thing! I've got a little pamphlet on it back there, and I'm trying, I'm trying to translate more of that. But the chemicals that are in the Emerald Tablet uh, are ancient Egyptian chemicals. We know that they worked with them, and actually, that is where the the um, the formula for the Emerald Tablet came from. This chemical formula it came from Alexandria. Uh, the Christians. And the Arabs took this ancient tradition. There were like 700,000 volumes in the, in the library of Alexandria. They reduced it to burnings and, and whatever. By 400 A.D., there were like 70,000 manuscripts left. And the reason the Emerald Tablet survived to us is because there were Arabic translations of some of these works. They couldn't read Arabian, so they didn't <laughs> burn those books. And they survived in, in, um, in the Islamic countries. Really, we have Islam to thank for the Emerald Tablet. And, um, yeah lots L-A-T-Z and uh, so they uh, uh, worked with these chemicals and discovered them in translations really when the Arabian writings came to Spain uh, about 700 A.D. with the Moorish invasion of Spain and uh, that's really how alchemy entered into Europe. So in order to sanctify this presence here, to clear out the crucible, to clear out the minds, so let's say the Emerald Tablet, um, and get a feeling for what it means, and really we're going to spend the rest of the day trying to apply these principles and understand them. In truth, without deceit, certain and most veritable, that which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below in order to the chronicles of the one thing. And just as all things come from this one thing, through the meditation of one mind, so do all created things originate from this one thing, transformation. The father is the son, mother is the moon, the wind carries it in its belly, its nurse is the earth. It is the origin of all, the consecration of the universe, its inherent strength is perfected if it is turned into earth separate the earth by fire the subtle from the gross gently and with great ingenuity it rises from earth to heaven and descends again to earth thereby combining within itself the powers of both the above and the below thus will you obtain the glory of the whole universe all obscurity will be clear to you This is the greatest force of all powers because it overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. In this way was the universe created. From this comes many wondrous applications because this is the pattern. Therefore am I called thrice greatest Hermes, having all three parts of the wisdom of the whole universe. Again, have I completely explained the operation of the sun. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for saying that along with me. The intonation of the Emerald Tablet, in fact, the tradition in, in alchemy is that the word comes from the expression of what's in the one mind. In the one mind, there are not words, it's what, in fact, we rarely experience this idea that there's something before we have a concept, there's something before something becomes a thought. It's an energy, it's an inspiration but it's not something you get a handle on until you say the word, until the word comes to mind, until it's formulated like that. That's how the creation of the universe uh, occurs, and we can see it in some of these old drawings. This just il- illustrates the Emerald Tablet, um, this section of the Emerald Tablet that we just said, its father is the sun, its mother the moon. The wind carries it in its belly. What does the wind carry in its belly? It carries a life force, and you can see it as this little fetus here, in the belly of this man, <laughs> in the solar plexus, tondin, uh energy part, the manupura. What is it? It's not a fetus. It's the life force. It's a, it's a baby growing in all of us. It's it's that place uh, called by alchemists the first matter, that chaotic energy that's waiting to be formed by our thoughts and our and our inspiration. Um, The first matter is the subject of the Emerald Tablet. Whenever it says it, it's referring to the first matter. But the first matter is the catch-22. The first matter is the hardest thing to understand in alchemy. Um, When I started my website, Alchemy Lab, I got a lot of flack from different alchemists about releasing too much information. So we made the the, uh, website that people had to answer this riddle to get into the website, I think I got a copy of it here. <coughs> and if they could answer the riddle, then we felt that they they had enough uh, background or teachings or sophistication to, yeah, here it is, to be privileged enough to visit my website. <laughs> <laughs> The key to life and death is everywhere to be found, but if you do not find it in your own house, you will find it nowhere. Yet it is before everyone's eyes. No one can live without it. Everyone has used it. The poor usually possess more of it than the rich. Children play with it in the streets. The meek and uneducated esteem it highly, but the privileged and learned often throw it away. When rejected, it lies dormant in the bowels of the earth. It is the only thing from which the philosopher's stone can be prepared, and without it, no noble metal can ever be created. This is actually a riddle, the answer to which is the first matter. Uh, Nobody got it right. Nobody was visiting my website. (laughs) And that's how hard it is. Uh, We're just not aware of this idea. In fact, it's called... The building stone that the builders forgot, the cornerstone that the builders forgot, because it's part of our civilization that's not there. It doesn't support us. Everything for us is black or white, matter, spirit, or metal things. Nothing in between. The first matter is in between. It's both matter, it's both mind, it's both spirit. It's something that exists in between and has that potential. The closest we can come to maybe is energy, our idea of energy or light, or something that's not connected with matter. But the first matter is a difficult concept. It was co- it was difficult for the alchemists. If you look up in Rutland's uh, alchemical dictionary from the, from the 1400s, there's 400 words when you look up first matter. Everything from feces and urine and menstruum to to uh, dead bodies and corpses and mummy, mummy flesh and anything with the idea that it was alive at one time or that it carries life for us. In fact, the word, of, uh, the word alchemy comes from uh, alchem, which means the black dirt of the Nile, this fertile dirt, which was uh, an Egyptian word for the first matter. This black soil was very fertile, so, that, so it's always there with that idea of it's something unexpectedly fertile or expect unexpectedly going to grow into something new. So alchem, or, or chem, the name for this black soil, became alchemy in the Arabian meaning the the science from the black soil or from the first matter or from Egypt. In fact, uh, in in hieroglyphics there are very few round symbols. Uh, The circle has this idea in Egyptian hieroglyphics of being something perfect. They put a cartouche or an oblong circle on a pharaoh's name to indicate that it's sacred. Very few round circles. One is for gold, It's a round circle with a a dot in the center. This ancient symbol for gold. The other one is for the first matter. It's a circle with three wide bands going through it. Such a perfect symbol. I couldn't come up with a better one because in the first matter, there's the idea that there are three principles at work. These principles are sulfur, mercury, and salt. And that's an ancient hieroglyph that... Modern uh, researchers, it's one of the few hieroglyphs that they have no idea what it means. And yet it's alchem. It's the, it's the name of Egypt. And they have no idea what it means. And they're arguing about what it means. Some, some believe it means placenta. Some uh, think it means just the black soil during the flooding of the Nile. And that's what these three bands are, waves. Always carrying this idea of life from, from something that's dead or, or life from something that's, that's not... Fully expressed. That's the symbol for first matter that the Egyptian alchemists used. So this uh, idea that the wind carries it in its belly is that it's invisible. That the emerald, the, the first, the emerald Tablets talks about the the first matter as if it's something you can work with, and people have an idea where do I find this stuff and how do I accumulate it, and that was a major occupation of the alchemist Uh, sometimes they thought it was in dew so they'd they'd collect dew in the morning, special dew or sometimes um, uh, uh, dew it occurred under the rays of the moon or uh, we'll see an example later during distillation of an alchemist who collected 700 gallons of boy's urine in Holland thinking that the first matter was in boy's urine thinking that urine being a rejected part of us And that boy's urine was pure, or maybe he was some kind of weirdo, I don't know, but uh, thinking that boy's urine was pure, he collected it and distilled it. And you know what? He got this down to the last gallon, distilling 700 gallons of boy's urine, and the stuff started to glow. It, and the whole lab filled up with this beautiful glowing light that came from this, this uh, retort where his distilling was dropping in drop by drop and when he got to that concentration that was just right it started glowing, That a picture of it uh, it's called the discovery of phosphorus, but that's how it happened because phosphorus is in urine, what he did by concentrating the urine so much he'd, he'd released phosphorus, but it couldn't have been a better synchronicity that he discovered it's like the quantum effect, you know, the experimenter affects the experiment by what he expects to happen. Uh, We know that consciousness is a force of nature in quantum physics. We just haven't, That just hasn't filtered down to our everyday society. That's the principle of alchemy. Consciousness is a force of nature. What you project in reality can actually change it. So uh, so for a long time uh, in Europe, almost 40 years, alchemists were drinking boy's urine <laughs> or distilled boy's urine uh, because it had this principle that, that uh, uh, the first matter was a glowing energy present, a light just like Akhenaten believed that this energy was a light we know from the eastern tradition of alchemy that this is also the life force the invisible life force within us prana chi ki uh, kundalini all these things—that's the first matter in our bodies, and that's how the Eastern alchemists work with it. In fact, I find that if you really have a—if you're really stumped in Western alchemy, go to Eastern alchemy, and it'll be a very clear exposition. It's like the two balances each other. It's like they balance the planet, yin and yang. Uh, Western approach is argumentative and, and linear and based on logic and, and experimentation, whereas the Eastern approach is very feminine. It's very passive. It's very experiential. And uh, very much feeling the energies and working with them that way, so they balance each other in a perfect way. And you can, if you have the ability, to not being tied to a tradition, you can really learn a lot just that way by jumping back and forth between the traditions. Uh, its mother is the earth. Mm-hmm. The symbol for uh, oh, I'll, I'll put it up. I'll put it up. Um its, it's mother is the earth Or the idea is that the first matter the goal of first matter even though it's invisible even though it's not seen even though once you get tuned into it you can pick it out in people and you can pick it out in a, in a room you can pick it out in a field even though you can get a sense of it that strong it's not perfect until it's made into something until the first matter is changed into something more perfect than that which has already existed whether you're working on yourself whether you're working on lead in the laboratory and changing it into gold whatever you're working on the first matter is, is instrumental instrumental in changing it the, the working all the workings in the laboratory is Solway uh, dissolve everything down to its basics so you work with matter and you release the essence of matter which is what first matter everything has a spark of the divine mind in it that, that's released through alchemical chemical operations. Once that Divine Essence is there, you can tap into it with mental energy, with meditation, and change it into something else. And this has really some strong implications for healing and for spiritual growth. And we'll go into more of the actual operations here. Um, Again, uh, this part of the Emerald Tablet is talking about the elements, the four elements, um, water, fire, earth, and air. And they're also present in human beings as the different humors. I'm sure you're all familiar with the the melancholic humor, which is earth, or the uh, choleric, which is fire, um, the sanguine, which is air. And all of these things, even in the Eastern tradition, we have these same elements. The Eastern tradition is a little bit clearer, though. They add a fifth element called wood, which is what? It's uh, a life, something that's been alive. It's the life force, trying to add the life force as a, as a, uh, as an element that you can work with in the laboratory. But in the Western tradition, it becomes the quintessence or the fifth element, and the quintessence is the life force in alchemy, and it's the fifth essence. It's the essence that's in all things. Every element can be reduced to the fifth essence and controlled from that. Any other questions or anything? Yeah. The, the, what is the relationship between divine mind and first matter? Does one proceed? And we're we're going to actually see that on, on a, a drawing coming up, where the alchemists sh- show it beautifully. What the what the relationship between the divine mind, the first matter, and our mind and our world and matter? And I'll, I'll say that to explain it when I show that drawing. Again, these are the, uh, more pictures of the elements, um, and I want to talk about the symbols actually in this drawing here. Um, alchemical work took place in the inner laboratory, so the so physical work in the laboratory was always complemented by mental and spiritual work too. So there's meditation involved and in trying to change your mind. There were five, four grades of uh, consciousness or four fires. Actually, in alchemy, when they talk about uh, Fire. They're often talking about states of states of consciousness and uh, states of consciousness and spiritual growth on that line. In other words, fire as a light of consciousness. And there were four grades with which the alchemists worked. There were, there there was the celestial fire, which is the fire in the mind of God. This is not the Word, okay? This is the fire before the Word. This is the inspiration of God, or the celestial uh, fire. And the alchemist could contact this fire too and use it in his work. And there was the the, uh, central fire. In other words, hidden in all matter was a seed or a spark of this divine mind. In that table, there's a spark of divine mind. This table was alive. That table's alive. The chair's alive. You're alive. It's all alive because of this central fire it has in it, the, the essence of the divine mind that projected it into existence. Uh, Jung talks about it more in terms of archetypal principles. There's, a, there's an ideal table that came from, he doesn't want to mention the word God, but it came from the divine mind or the one mind. And the other fire is the everyday fire, um, they call it the elemental fire, um, that's the fire of the laboratory, and they, they treated that fire in the laboratory that caused transformations and things as a, as a fire of consciousness too. In other words, you turn on the stove, that fire is going to do work for you, and it seems to be alive and changes things, so that fire is a consciousness too. When you cook, you're cooking with the consciousness of the fire on the stove and the consciousness of the fire within you to create something. Cooking's the same as alchemical work in a lot of ways. It's, it's working with the fires to project and change and transmute things. A fire is the number one element in alchemy because it changes. It's the agent of change. And uh, for instance, sulfuric acid, and the acids are all considered liquid fires. Anything that changes things like that is a fire. The the fourth fire is called the secret fire. Alchemists never revealed the secret fire uh, and and talked about it openly, mainly because they get in trouble with the church, I think, in the Middle Ages. The secret fire is your sexual energies, your life force energies, your ki, your prana, those, those life force energies that are inside you. And those are the energies that they use to transform themselves. The secret fire is really the secret of the alchemical transformation. Knowing how to direct your own energies, your own consciousness, and life force, and uh, whether it's in tantric alchemy, working with the sexual kundalini, ideas like that, or whether it is uh, a more Western tradition of working with uh, uh, mental energies and life force, Those are the four fires. We'll talk about those a little bit later. Um, This complicated symbol is really about fire and water coming together on the vertical axis of reality. And these are the operations of alchemy in highly schematic form. But they're talking about definite processes that go on in the laboratory. And we're going to talk about each one of those processes. But this is how esoteric Things can get in alchemy. This is a description of alchemical processes going on in a laboratory. Imagine trying to figure that out. And sometimes it's clearer what these operations are. Often they associate it with a tree of life. In other words, a chemical change is a growing process, uh, growing through these seven stages. We'll talk about each one of these uh, uh, here shortly and learn what these operations are and how to apply them yeah yes in fact uh, this is a, a look at the chakras and uh, there's, there's seven levels here yeah from, from the Sahasrara chakra at the top the crown chakra to the from the mudlahara uh, bottom. And that's why there's no words in that, because you interpret it in your own tradition, I think. Uh, sometimes they did label them, uh, often in, in scrambled order, so the public would know exactly the, what the order of the operations were, like in this drawing. But this shows the great work and, and working with the stars, the, the four elements, and the operations to enter this inner sanctum where everything comes together as one, where, where something is reborn on a whole new level. Um these operations. Now don't get overwhelmed. We're going to be using four syllable words here. And I'm using them my publishers hate me to use these words. They want they want simple things like working with fire today or you know, working with water, something something one syllable. These are the words that the alchemists use. If you use these words and become familiar with what they are, you go back 400 years, you can understand exactly what the alchemists are talking about when they talk about calcination, uh, dissolution, separation, conjunction, fermentation, distillation, coagulation. Uh, It sounds intimidating. It sounds like a Moody Blues song, actually. (laughs) But uh, But these are the operations, and these these are what the alchemists called them. In fact, these are actual symbols uh, from alchemical texts that describe these operations uh, in terms of the elements here of fire, water, air, uh, earth and air, sulfur, mercury, and salt, or through the planetary ladder. The alchemists believe, as above, so below. So the changes in the laboratory should correspond to the whole solar system, too. And they believe that truly. From Saturn to the sun, the way the planets line up, it's a stepping stone to perfection. It's another pattern in the universe of change. In other words, it's like there's a ladder of planets that you have to crawl to understand um, the alchemical energies and to work with them. And it's like being on each planet, and sometimes the alchemists projected their minds or tried to project their minds to Jupiter or Mars to feel these archetypal energies or work with the metals that are corresponding here. And down below there are the uh, operations of alchemy (coughs) using the different symbols um, of the actual operations. (coughs) Calcination is a crucible, it's working with fire. Dissolution is a retort or a a bottle, and it's working with water. And I'll go through these symbols and actually do each one so you'll you'll see them better on the uh, overhead projector. Um, Separation is working with air, and it's shown as a filter here. Um, Conjunction is working with earth. It's bringing things together, showing in in a vessel here that's used for conjuncting uh, compounds. The fermentation phase is working with the life force. When we get beyond conjunction, fermentation is working with the powers from above. Before conjunction, we're working with the powers below. So at fermentation, there's a substantial change in the energies here, and fermentation is working with uh, with the life force and, and working uh, with sulfur, which is the symbol of the life force. Sulfur burns. Sulfur, uh, sulfuric acid is a fire in itself, and everything of of. Uh, uh, sulfur has this burning aspect of it and transforming change, just like the life force within us. Sulfur is another um, word in alchemy for the very life force. In fact, the symbol here of fermentation is the caduceus of Hermes, you know, the, the, the wing thing with the two snakes uh, curling up three and a half times. This is a side view of the caduceus and the three and a half times of uh, up. So the idea here is life force in fermentation. That's what happens in fermentation. A life force or bacteria starts a process of change in the wine or whatever we're working with. Distillation is shown as the top of a retort a collecting. In other words, distillation, we all know what distillation is. You boil something, it condenses into vapor, and that condenses at the top, either drops back into the, into the original boiling vessel, or it can be uh, siphoned off. Uh, that is a Mercury operation and, and a very important operation in alchemy that we'll go into <clears throat> we'll go into later. It's like, <clears throat> like distillation is the operation of the whole universe. The whole universe is being distilled. Uh, that's what the Ouroboros is. This distillation, circular operation of boiling something, have it having it become spiritual or vaporized and, and coming back into matter this whole idea of this cycle and finally a coagulation another vessel we're bringing two things together and fusing them uh, this is a symbol for an amalgam or the idea that you fuse things together it, the coagulation is when the stone happens okay now you're being really great, you're really sticking with me And these are, these are complicated um, concepts and new to many of you But I want to get the philosophy out of the way so we can talk about and mention these things. And so be patient. Uh, We're going to talk about these things so that you understand them uh, on all levels that we've been talking about. And I've thrown out these words to you, and and just so you'll recognize them later (laughs) when I'm working with them. This is a lot to absorb in the first uh, first hour here. and really all we're doing is we're, we're in the outer court of initiation. We're working with all the known things. The things that the alchemists talk about openly for the most part. Um, these are the operations of alchemy described and actually that's that's in your hand the handout there too. So I'll, I'll pass over that. Uh, again, this whole operation is not a linear thing. You don't want to think of operation one through seven. You, know? you don't want to I got to do calcination, then I got to dissolution, I got to work with fire then water or something like that. Uh, these operations merge together. Um, I can guarantee you, as a mathematician or at least one who studied mathematics, that linear thinking leads us leads us on the lurch, really. You go up this ladder of linear thinking, which is for many people what mathematics is, you know what logic is you're going to be left hanging at the end with no place to go. And that's that's so true. When I was studying, in fact, when I was a kid, I had a mystical experience that got me very interested in what the truth is, what the truth of the world is. And uh, I was told, and I read that mathematics was the way to truth, that that type of thinking was the way to truth. So I became really dedicated, really stubborn, in the study of mathematics, especially higher mathematics and closer to the truth. And and uh, and I went to graduate school at the University of Vienna in Austria to study uh, particularly with a, a, an intuitive mathematician named Kurt Gerdell. he was a professor there who left the whole department of mathematics, and Kurt's work was profound in the world. Uh, and I didn't really understand it. There was a time when nobody but him understood his proofs. Uh, they were very complicated. Um, it took 40 years before they even had uh, professors that were able to teach his work. And yet everybody said that this was the truth of mathematics and that this was the truth. It was said that Goodell had actually proved the existence of God and things like that. I mean, no wonder I was attracted <laughs> to his work. The thing is about Udell's work, when I really got to understand it, he proved that mathematics is a silly game. He proved that mathematics, logic in particular, I shouldn't really say mathematics, but logic in particular is nonsense. That logic is our illusion. That logic is not a way to find truth. And... There were mathematicians jumping out of windows. There were mathematicians committing suicide when they read his proof and understood it. Because they said, it said, all this work you put into logic and being logical and trying to live logical is nonsense. It has no foundation in mathematics. And the way he did it, I won't go into a lot of detail, but at the time, there were a lot of anal retentive mathematicians, uh, uh, Whitehead and Russell, uh, were really trying to prove that mathematics was extremely neat and that every conclusion in mathematics could be proven based on what came before it. So they got down to number theory which is the basis of mathematics and they were working with axioms and they really got stuck. They couldn't find a previous proof that would say that this is true except we feel it's true. In other words in other words, that our intuition tells us that one and one is two. It's not. There's nothing in that we can prove that one-on-one is really true, it might, it might be three, or it might be four. We can't prove any difference from that, except just our intuition. They got down to that level. That's when Gerdel came in, and he says, you're right. And he proved it by using what's called self-referencing propositions, which is really, in alchemy, we we'll use some self-referencing meditations. They're very powerful and it's a way to break through and, and to find the foundation of something. It is similar to things like um, a sentence. This statement is false. Okay, that's a self-referencing proposition. It's talking about itself. It's referring back to itself. But how do you prove it? If this sentence is false, then it must be true. If it's true, it can't be false. And you get in that loop. That loop that Captain Kirk used to burn up computers. Remember when he'd asked that question uh, and they didn't know what the answer is? Well, that's what happens in your brain if you think about that long enough. Um, and it happens, it's a real danger to have faith in logic. And that was a shock. That's a shock to, to uh, intellectual people. And it's a very humbling experience to know that um, logic is ego, that the logic is man saying, I know. And that this is the way it's going to be. And it all falls apart. And it's going to fall apart, I predict, <laughs> it's going to fall apart in our world. Because our Western world is too logical. It has no respect for the intuitive side of things. Um, in business, in computers, and in science, and military, everywhere, you see this faith in logic that Gurdell. 50 years ago proved is wrong that it's just filtering down in, into society um, it's the basis of fuzzy logic and chaos theory and a lot of people are working with it but politicians have no idea of this and, and, uh, and a lot of people have no idea of this uh, Bill Gates has no idea <laughs> of this in fact um, it's that faith in computers it's that faith that a machine can be logical and be so much more logical than us that it's a wonder and that we, that we think a computer is anything and here I am a mathematician talk about computers but they're they're just games computers are just games just machines um, we have too much faith in them we respect computers like they're this logical God the computers are more logical than me because I can't figure out this binary logic that fast it's yes or no with computers there's nothing in between and in between is where the truth is always the middle pillar the middle way computers have no idea what that middle way is. They're evil. <laughs> and, and, and faith in computers is really uh, something that's going to overthrow us. I really believe it. I mean, think of, uh, think of a computer program with a simple algorithm. You're building a city and you're setting up and you want the city to run with the simplest rules and, um, and you have a rule like uh, the barber only cuts the hair a people, I mean, only shaves people or it cuts the hair only shaves people who don't shave themselves okay? The barber, we're just talking about the barber in this big city only shaves people who don't shave themselves a simple rule, Bill Gates puts it in a program and, and you've got it on his Xbox and, and, it's, and it's playing away all of a sudden, some kid asks, what happens when the barber has to shave himself? he only shaves the people who can't who, who don't shave themselves, and yet he can't shave himself, and all of a sudden the Xbox is going up in smoke uh, because it's a self-referencing proposition. The whole and that little flaw in the program brings down the whole, the whole algorithm. A uh, better example. About a year ago, I was watching TV. This is a good synchronicity. Um, Microsoft Internet Explorer 4 was coming out. They had this commercial that said, where do you want to go today? Microsoft can take you anywhere in the universe. Where do you want to go today? We'll take you there. Don't don't worry about it. You know, we're, it was this very confident, very cocky commercial with all these geometric squares, very logical. And to add a little class to it, they had a um, Mozart's Requiem mass singing in the background. And uh, in the mass, there's this phrase that's repeated over and over again. It's a Latin phrase that says... Uh, Confitatus maledictus, flammus acribus addictus. Confitatus maledictus, flammus acribus addictus. And having translated so much Latin, I I think I I certainly was the only one, uh, no no one at Microsoft knew what it meant, believe me, because it means, uh, through this are the damned and accursed consigned to the gates of hell. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I think I think someone I think someone wise up at, at Microsoft, but through the Internet Explorer is, is and through your computer is how you're going to end up at the gates of hell. It's just too much synchronicity for me, and I really think that something like that's going to happen uh, in the world, and if it's going to be far far beyond the the 2000 millennium problem, which is another example of this. In other words, truth, logic is not the way to truth. That's what Goodell taught us. And um, It's a good game, it's a good operation, a good thing to use, Things, things work smoothly, we feel secure, but it's not until you enter the chaos of intuition, of opening yourself up to not only thinking, which is logic, but also feeling, In other words, we got the masculine and feminine again, just like Akhenaten believed. You have to balance these two. Masculine, argumentative, logical thought, the way of the Western world, um, the way of science, versus the feminine way, the passive way. Wait for the feeling to come. Thoughts come really fast. Thoughts are a mile a minute. You have to wait for intuitions and feelings to catch up with thoughts. That's why it never happens, because we're such a thinking people so much time we spend in this four inch area of our cerebral cortex when the realities are in our heart according to Goodell this is mathematics this has been proven and, uh, and yet people don't realize it they still think that math is logic that logic is the way to truth and it's just not true so as much as you are shocked by that um, as much as Bill Gates would be shocked by that um, I was shocked by that and mathematicians were shocked by that all through the world and it put me into <clears throat> a funk, I guess. It put me into a de- little bit of a depression in, in Austria. Along with other things, I was homesick and, and also uh, at the end of my rope as far as financial things were going. But So all this come together at once. I lost everything, it seemed to me. And it's just at times like that that something opens up to, for us. As soon as we become that empty cup with no no prospects it's like something opens up I and mean, uh, Jung's ca- talked about this perhaps you've experienced in the library uh, where you're where you just totally frustrated looking for doing some research or looking for a topic and all of a sudden the book falls off a shelf or something and it opens up to the, the page that, that you're looking for, the answer to your question or uh, that happens to me all the time books, books are like I Ching <laughs> uh, references, I mean if you get to that point where you've given up looking logically and now you've just thrown it open to the gods and all of a sudden often things happen like that Jung called it the library ghost and he really believed in it <laughs> he believed that there was a ghost in his library that gave him answers <laughs> answers to questions that's what happened to me in Vienna I was uh, just strolling through the library where I always went when I'm depressed I always go to libraries when I'm depressed and uh, I was walking in the basement of the uh, this building that was built in 1200 AD and uh, I went to a room that I'd never been in it was a closed room at the end of the hall and I opened the door and there were nothing but alchemy books in this whole room all these beautiful old leather bound books and vellum bound books and written in German and Latin and uh, uh, and they were just being stored there because there was really no call for them they're really dusty old books and I opened up a few of these books and I saw the pictures and the pictures gave me answers to questions I had. Um, I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but personal things that I was working on, on all levels of my, on my spiritual evolution and mental evolution, things that happened to me in the past that I didn't understand, were being explained in these pictures. The relationships in these pictures were being explained to me um, by these alchemists who had been dead for four or five centuries. Um, and I really was drawn into that. And that, those, in those pictures, the alchemists invested all their intuition. There's not a word in those pictures. And yet, they were investing exactly what Goodell said was the way to find truth. And so I was really attracted to the alchemical text. I started translating them. And, um, and that's basically how that, how that all started. And we close to a breaker? G-O, and it has an umlaut on it, or two, two dots above it. Uh, D-E-L. Yeah. You recognize it? Girdell, Escher, Bach. There's, no, there's a number of books out there um, that have written about it. Okay, I think we'll be on the break here. I already told you we messed that up. So let's take a 15-20 minute break and come on back.